0: Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to this passionate about food and drink podcast from the food and Drink Federation. My name is Tim Rycroft, I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF. And today to talk all things food and drink, I'm joined by my boss and my friend, Ian Wright. Hello, Ian. Hello, Tim. So I thought we would start with Northern Ireland. There's been uh, quite a few developments around Northern Ireland over the last couple of weeks. And in particular, we've seen this fascinating move by the UK government to extend laterally the grace periods that applied to trade going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland following Britain's exit from the transition period on the 1st of January. Some of those grace periods were imminently due to expire. They were periods that allowed for Uh, uh, less notification, pre-notification of trade, less paperwork, avoiding some checks. And there was a great deal of concern, I think, in food and drink circles that when the grace periods expired, the additional trade friction that would be the result of that would cause serious problems of supply into Northern Ireland. Now, of course, the Northern Ireland Protocol, a separate treaty negotiated alongside the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, has in it mechanisms by which the UK government and the EU are supposed to resolve these kind of issues and they are supposed to be done collaboratively. So the fact that the government has chosen to do this unilaterally uh, without uh, asking the EU, if you like, for permission to do so is a fascinating development and indeed as we speak we expect that the EU will at least formally begin proceedings against the UK government for not following the terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So there are some fascinating things going on that are driving these kind of behaviours. And of course, the key parties are the UK government, the Irish Republic government, and the remainder of the EU member states. And I know that you talk frequently to representatives of all three of those parties, I'd be really interested to know what your take is on this action. From the UK government, what you think it heralds in terms of potentially a different approach to Northern Ireland uh, from this government, and how you see some of these moves playing out over the next few weeks?
1: Well, I think it is a very important part of the puzzle that we that confronts us. If, if the immediate future of food and drink is going to be defined by the recovery from Covid, the UK-EU relationship and the question of what happens to food supplies to Northern Ireland, I think uh, this will be one of the most immediate parts of, uh, of that puzzle that we have to solve. I also think it's one of the most intractable. Uh, there's a very interesting article, actually, on uh, the Conservative Home website. I think we should probably refer to it as the authoritative Conservative Home website, um, with an analysis of the government's uh, potential change of strategy on this issue, and I think I think it does seem that Lord Frost uh, heralds a uh, decision, Lord Frost's appointment heralds um, a different uh, track for this relationship, and probably a more confrontational track. It's clear that many, many Conservatives and many Democratic Unionists believe that the Northern Ireland Protocol, as signed by the Prime Minister last autumn, is fundamentally flawed their difficulty in reforming it is that it is now an international treaty with all sorts of obligations under international law and what we're going to see in the next few days I suspect is the government held to account under international law for what is described in a rather pompous word as an abrogation of the treaty Um, and that has with it all sorts of potential sanctions. One is that uh, it could be that the EU will impose tariffs on UK goods as a retaliatory measure for this uh, unilateral move. The second is that they will almost certainly start a court action uh, in the European Court of Justice. It's not inconceivable they could start court action in the High Court in the UK or in Belfast, and both of those would be very, very uh, challenging moves for the UK government. And the third is that there could be a fairly significant intervention at some point. though I think we're a little way away from that by the US government, uh, which sees itself rightly, I think, as, the, uh, as a joint arbiter of the, or owner of the uh, sponsor of the Northern Ireland peace deal that came together under the Belfast Agreement on Good Friday in 1998. So I think there are a number of really quite concerning developments here all of which have um some implications for our members and those doing business in northern ireland Uh, without going on too long on this point i think it is important to understand that there are sort of two different parts to this many of our members and many others will have been absolutely delighted by the decision to uh, extend the grace periods even though it is unilaterally because clearly we were going to be in a situation where virtually no one was ready to end those grace periods and come under the obligations that might have replaced them. So trade to Northern Ireland won't be disrupted in the short term in a way that it would have been had the 1st of April deadline been left in place, however uh, there is a real concern that our members and others trading with Northern Ireland are open to sanction because they are acting in breach of, or they may be acting in breach of an international legal obligation Um, and it it is not clear that there is anything that the UK government can do by way of letters of comfort or reassurance that would tell big global firms who have to fill in compliance certificates whose staff have to fill in compliance certificates that say I have abided by all laws and regulations of the territories for which I am responsible for the management of my enterprise's activities it's not at all clear that anybody who fills those in can do so uh, with a clear conscience if the UK government is found to be acting uh, against international law. And that might have quite profound implications for big American and big European and big global companies trading in Northern Ireland.
0: So as things stand, the, the Conservative opinion that you referred to seems to pretty much be focused on the idea that the EU in negotiating the Northern Ireland protocol was really too protective, overly protective of the single market, because the risk of things that don't meet their standards crossing the border from Northern Ireland into the Republic of Ireland, and therefore, as a kind of backdoor into the whole of the EU, to them seems extraordinarily small, given that at the moment, at least, British food standards are precisely aligned with those of the EU. Presumably that argument starts to erode as and when we start to diverge. Yes, and
1: that is I think one part of the uh, reason for the EU's adherence to the protocol. Uh, There are others, uh, but that is a legitimate, that one is a legitimate uh, point of debate. Um, The others though are kind of more difficult for the UK government. The first and absolutely fundamental point is that the Prime Minister signed up for this treaty. It is international law and instead of breaking it, uh, we should be trying to change it by negotiation. There's a joint committee which is there to make it work um, and that would seem to be the logical place to start. I and mean, I'd contrast this attitude to international law with the way that we are extremely active on behalf of um, uh, Nazani Radcliffe in Iran, rightly so. We're very upset about the way that the Chinese government is treating Hong Kong citizens, rightly so. And we're very, very angry about the way that the government in Myanmar is behaving, rightly so. All of those are under international law too, and you can't pick and choose. So that's my my first point. The Prime Minister signed up for this. The second point is, I think it does misunderstand. The Conservative position misunderstands the attitude of the EU, both to the single market and to Northern Ireland. On the single market, it is the jewel in the crown, as far as EU members are concerned, of the union. It's also worth remembering that it is entirely a British creation. It was Lord Cofield who was the commissioner and Mrs. Thatcher's idea that the single market should exist. It is Mrs. Thatcher's greatest legacy to the world, as far as many are concerned. So it is hugely ironic that the Thatcherite successors in the Conservative Party are against it or don't see its value. And I imagine that the Iron Lady would be uh, wagging an extremely angry finger at some of the people who say such things about the single market, were she still to be here. Uh, The third thing though, and I think this is probably the most important actually, is that the EU regards itself as equally responsible for Northern Ireland, because it is acting on behalf of, as it sees it, uh, its member country, the Republic, which let's not forget, has a constitutional claim on the six counties um and so these are very difficult and tricky and potentially murky waters and as someone whose dad was blown up by the ira in 1974 when he had absolutely nothing to do with the conflict fortunately he survived but that wasn't anything to do with that was dead lucky um i take a very clear view that any return to violence is absolutely to be avoided at all costs. And I don't think uh, any of our members would take a different view.
0: So I suppose the final question on on this one would be, to what extent do you see a read-across between the evolving trading terms across the Irish Sea and the opportunity to evolve trading terms across the Channel and the North Sea?
1: Well, there's undoubtedly some uh, relationship, I think. So if we could, through negotiation and probably a bit of shouting at each other, get the GBNI relationship to a better place in terms of practicality, there are almost certainly some consistencies that could be delivered to the uh, UK-EU relationship. And there's definitely some opportunity to improve both of those two different trade flows. But the trouble is, at the moment, the language is so shouty and the positions are so entrenched that it seems difficult to believe that the, uh, the two parties can reach any kind of accommodation unless it's by some form of international arbitration. I mean, you would not want to be, would you, stuck in a lift with David Frost and uh, one or other of the senior figures in the EU Because you just know that they would start shouting at each other uh, within about 15 seconds. And it does seem that that relationship, all the frustrations, all the imperfections on both sides have sort of surfaced. And this is is a moment where the recriminations are going to flow for many, many months, I think, until something happens that jolts both parties out of them. And, you know, please God, it isn't a return to violence on the streets of Northern Ireland or or the streets of Great Britain.
0: Well, here, here to that. OK, I'm going to move on now. So on Friday, we had uh, from the Office of National Statistics, the first official view of the impact on UK-EU trade of us exiting the transition period at the beginning of the year. Now, we had already um, published figures from our members suggesting that their own trade... To the EU was down over 40%. And what we got on Friday was confirmation at least that in January, the month of January, overall trade, not just food between the UK, UK exports to the EU, were down by 44% and actually food and drink trade by somewhat more than that. What is your reflection on those figures? Clearly the ONS has explained there are a number of factors that they think are probably temporary. To what extent do you see that kind of impact as temporary and where do you think uh, the trade figures will be perhaps at the end of the first quarter?
1: Well, I think that they are uh, one month. It's worth being very clear about that. So in January, there were a number of special factors which could, uh, could have hit these figures in, in both directions, actually. So many member companies many across the industry had taken the opportunity to stockpile. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that, and I... I think i've said this on this call before i think the stockpiling is more significant and more long-lasting than any of us expected uh so that that is still working its way through and certainly in january was, was prominent in the reason for the 60 plus percent fall in uh, in traffic on food and drink but i also think that a number of uk manufacturers have taken a tactical decision to stay out of the EU markets until they can be sure whether their goods will get through. Now that uh, it's not clear how much improvement there is in the ability of UK suppliers to get their products through into the EU uh, over the last three, two, three, two and a half, three months. We know many of our members are seeing a, a bit of an improvement in getting stuff through but we also continue to hear reports of inconsistent application of, uh, of, of checks and regulations by different EU border posts. I guess that's inevitable and it's probably been experienced by all third parties, uh, all third countries over the last 40 years. Um, we also hear that the time taken and the cost of the bureaucracy in order to get those checks properly navigated is proving prohibitive for many players to participate in the EU market and then uh, alongside that we hear that many hauliers are reluctant to come to the UK from the EU uh, because they're worried about cost and delay and potentially the viability of those journeys. Now that's a big problem because the UK has a significant shortage of hauliers and EU hauliers play an important role not just in UK-EU trade, but in moving product around the UK, and if they're not here and they're reluctant to come, then first of all it makes the journeys and the planning very difficult and secondly it puts the costs up. So both of those are are very significant factors. And then a third uh, probably restraining element on UK-EU trade in the next few weeks is going to be the whole imposition of checks on composite products which threatens to derail another whole section of goods going into the EU with further checks. And the most ridiculous of them seems to me to be the need for attestations and potentially vet certificates to uh, verify the status of the pasteurized milk that makes up both the cheese powder, part of the cheese powder for cheese and crisps and the milk chocolate for chocolate biscuits. Uh, both of these potentially very significant uh, problems for the manufacturers of those products. And and in all honesty, both of them probably really deliberate soft barriers to trade rather than food safety, uh, con- re- re- dealing with food re- legitimate food safety concerns.
0: So we've talked already about unilateral extension of grace periods in Northern Ireland. The government has also moved to extend some deadlines about imports from the EU. Now, this is different. This isn't a breach of any kind of treaty. This is a decision that lies entirely in the hands of the British government. Uh, they can choose to enforce the borders to the level that they, they want. Um, and they have pushback deadlines that were due on the 1st of April and the 1st of July, one to October and one into next year. Um, I'm guessing that uh, rather similarly to Northern Ireland, that the FDF's response to this on behalf of members is uh, we think it's the right decision uh, in terms of prioritising flow, but it's important that the underlying issues get resolved rather than simply kicking the can down the road. Yeah, that's definitely our position.
1: Um, and in this case, the underlying issue is rather concerning because what we're effectively doing in a situation where, those, uh, where the parallel checks for product going into the EU are as I just said getting worse, Um, we're basically saying um, to the EU importers into the UK, come and get us. So we're we're not dealing with a balanced scorecard in terms of trade restrictions and barriers to trade. And for UK producers or those who are in both the UK and the EU market very active, that, that, that unbalanced position is really quite concerning from a, a long-term economic point of view. Nevertheless, these changes to import restrictions or import checks make perfect sense in the short term because neither the European exporters into the UK nor, I suspect, quite a lot of, though not all, UK importers nor the government were ready. So there would have been chaos.
0: I'm just going to move on uh, before we close to one other thing. So I know that you have a meeting in the next few days of the Food and Drink Sector Council, of which you are the industry co-chair, along with Terry Jones of the National Farmers Union. Um, I suspect quite a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with the work of the Sector Council. I think it'd be really interesting just to talk a little bit about what the Council is doing at the moment, and what's on its agenda and how you see its role at this critical time.
1: Well, the Sector Council is is a body established by DEFRA to advise it on the whole gamut of uh, food and drink policy. So we cover the whole range of activities that the industry and indeed the whole supply chain undertakes from farm to fork. And we're a policy sounding board uh, for government to come and talk, we're there for government to come and talk to us to uh, listen to their thoughts and their concerns about policy. Uh, We offer quite detailed recommendations on particular parts of the industry and For example, we've already done two very, very detailed reports, very well well received reports on uh, skills across the industry and on agricultural productivity. And we've done a a very short report on the recovery from COVID. That was written last summer and government adopted all but about three of the recommendations within five minutes of the report's publication. And I think, at least two of the three that it didn't adopt instantly. It's already uh, subsequently adopted. So we're quite influential, I think. Our membership is made up of of, uh, representatives, uh, though, as individuals. So nobody is there as the representative of the FDF or the representative of Nestle. But we have a cross-section of of, uh, the CEOs of big firms, and many of them are members. We have other industry um, i think the term is big weeks and we have a lot of other players in the industry so we have uh, we have the president of the nfu but we also have uh, representatives of small businesses we have representatives of the local enterprise partnerships and we uh, also have uh, three representatives of the devolved administrations but, uh, we're all we're, the, the meetings are attended by a an army of civil servants and government agencies. So we bring together DEFRA, uh, represent civil servants from DEFRA, from DIT, from the Business Department, from the Department of Health and Social Care, and from the relevant departments across the devolved administrations in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Uh, We're chaired, as you say, by Terry Jones and myself as industry co-chairs, And by David Kennedy, the most senior civil servant uh, dealing with food in DEFRA. Uh, We have regular attendance uh, from the Secretary of State, George Eustace, and from uh, his deputy, Victoria Prentice. And we also have welcomed other ministerial colleagues, including uh, Liam Fox, who was uh, Department of International Trade's founding uh, Secretary of State and we have other ministers scheduled to join us over the meetings to come. So we are I think in the background quite an influential and in, in, impactful group um and we probably offer a more considered sounding board and uh, opportunity for input than some other uh, groups within the industry. So a good example of where we will play a role is when Henry Dimbleby Uh, produces his thoughts on the national food strategy. One of the bodies to which he will direct those thoughts is the Food and Drink Sector Council. And we have a working group chaired by our own Stefano Agostini, the the chief executive of Nestle in the UK, which will offer a critique of Henry's thoughts and will uh, push that in the direction of DEFRA and others considering the strategy and then uh, DEFRA will, I guess, consider all of that, and a white paper will emerge probably towards the end of this year or beginning of next, depending on when Henry's report emerges. And We will have played an important part in the consideration and evaluation of of the report and in the formulation of the National Food Strategy. So I think it's a very worthwhile body.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm sure that's something to which we'll return, and in particular to Henry Dimbleby's part two uh, report as an input to the national food strategy which as you say we're expecting later this year ian thank you very much indeed for your time today thank you to all of you for listening and we look forward to being with you again in around two weeks time thank you for listening to this fdf podcast fdf is the voice of the food and drink industry supporting our members with the expertise to develop grow and strengthen their business to learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.enquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.